Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. As we get started this morning, uh, we're going to be in Galatians 3, so I want to share just a couple of things as we get started. First off, we're going to read a substantial portion of Galatians 3, uh, so it's not going to be on your screen. So if you have a, a Bible or an app or however you ex access God's Word, uh, you may want to go ahead and turn to Galatians 3 and uh, just go ahead and kind of mark your place there because we're going to spend a little bit of time uh, reading Galatians 3 this morning. The other thing I want to uh, say is, in case you haven't noticed, people are pretty messed up. Have you guys noticed that? Like, we have issues, right? Like, we, we just mess things up all the time. And it's not something that happens outside of the church only. It's something that happens in the church. If people are involved, things get messed up. Things get confusing. People, you know, clash with each other. There is division. And uh, I think that is just a testament to uh, just the amazing power of God, of Jesus, of, of what he means and all that, the truth of who he is. For despite imperfect people leading churches and being involved in churches, the church is still going strong almost 2,000 years after Jesus came and lived and died and rose again. And so what we're going to look at this morning is Galatians 3. And if you've been here the past two weeks at all, uh, you'll realize that the problems we have now in our churches, like the divisions and the confusion and people, you know, being at odds with each other, is not something that's new. It's not something that's just come about lately. Actually, very early on in the church, divisions started to arise. I used to have this picture of the church that it was like there was this golden era, this golden age of time when everything in the church was right and, and perfect. And it's just like exactly how God wanted it to be. And people were just living sinless, perfect lives, getting along with each other. Because you read about that in Acts 2. So what happens in Acts 2, and I'm going to use a couple of, of little, um, I guess, posters here to explain some things. So what you have in Acts 2 is you have the Holy Spirit coming on the people and entering into their lives. The Holy Spirit enters into the lives of the believers and the presence of God dwells within them. And that's the time when, when Peter stood up and preached to 3,000 plus people in Jerusalem. And 3,000 people were saved and became a part of the church. And then you read just a little bit later at the end of Acts 2 that the people had everything in common. That they were sharing with one another. They were fellowshipping together. They were enjoying the favor of each other. And there was this, this description of the church that seemed like this perfect bliss of a church. And it makes sense that, you know, right after uh, the Holy Spirit was, was poured out on the people, the church began to be formed. And, and Peter was leading that church. And it had this, this time where it seemed like everything was going to be great. But that didn't actually last very long because I was reading as I was preparing in Galatians 3, I went back to Acts, the book of Acts chapter 11, and something happened that disrupted all of that unity, that disrupted all of the, the bliss and the perfection and everyone having everything in common. And what that was, was that Peter visited a guy named Cornelius' house, a guy who was not Jewish who was a Gentile, and that Cornelius and his family was saved, had faith in Jesus, and the Holy Spirit actually came into the lives of these non-Jewish people. 
And so in Acts 11, Peter goes back, and this is what happens. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea, this is verse 1, heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. They received the Holy Spirit into their lives. So when Peter went to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, the Jews, criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men, the Gentiles. You went to the house of Gentiles and you ate with them. And so, I mean, that's not even probably a year into the life of this, this establishment of the church when the Holy Spirit at Pentecost entered into the lives of believers. There was already division. <clears throat> there was already disunity. There was already these questions of how can I let these other people who are different than me, who look different than me, into my family and into my group. And so the reason this was going on, and I want to use a couple of more posters, the reason that this was going on was because of two people in the history of Israel. One of them was this guy named Abraham. You see, Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. And so way back 2,000 years before Jesus even came and walked on this earth, there was people who disobeyed God at every level in their lives. They worshipped pagan gods. There was no respect or fear of the Lord, the creator of the universe. And God chose to call one person out, this guy named Abraham. And he made a promise to Abraham that we're going to read about today in Galatians 3. And the promise was that through you, Abraham, all of the nations, the entire world, everyone was going to be blessed. Meaning that salvation was going to come through you, Abraham, to the entire world. And of course, Abraham was the father of the Jewish, the circumcised. And so their father received this promise. Now there's another guy that's really important in this story that really caused some confusion for the Jewish believers. It was this guy named Moses. Most of you have probably heard of Moses. And so about 500 years after Abraham was called out, was given this promise that, that through him, everyone would receive salvation, God miraculously, remember, took Israel out of Egypt, delivered them from the hands of the Pharaoh, and on their way to this land that God had promised them, gave them the Ten Commandments along with 600 plus other laws. And so the Jewish nation that came out of Israel, these, these descendants of Abraham, were given a law by God to use to help set them apart from everyone else. To show that this is who God is, to represent God to all of the nations that one day would all be saved through Abraham. And so what we read about in, in Acts was, was these Jewish uh, believers, they, were, they, they couldn't figure it out. They were struggling with, with these two realities in their life, that God made a promise to Abraham that everyone would be saved, would be blessed through him. And yet God gave a law to these Jewish people, to, to Abraham's descendants, to follow, to set them apart from everyone else in the world to show who God was to them. And so naturally, a guy named Cornelius gets saved and the Holy Spirit enters his life when he believes and has faith in Jesus. And so these Jewish believers are like, wait a second. We followed this law for 1,500 years. Cornelius hasn't followed any law that we've been following. How can he be, be one of us? 
How can he join in on what Peter is doing and what Paul is talking about and what, what James, the brother of Jesus, is all about and what Jesus came to do? What is going on here? How do we accept these new people into our fold? And what happens is Paul comes on the scene and he is very clear about how this works. When he begins to travel around after he's miraculously saved on the road to Damascus, he goes around, he travels, and he says something in Pisidian Antioch that explains how all of this works. And this is what he says. This is Acts 13, 32 and 33. Paul is speaking this to the church at Antioch. He says, we tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. And so the final piece in this timeline is, of course, the most important is Jesus. And so if you look over all of history, you see this playing out throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament, that Abraham was given a promise to save people through him. Israelites, they were given a law to kind of watch over them. Jesus comes and fulfills all of it, and anyone who believes in Jesus receives the Holy Spirit and enters into the presence of God. And so these four characters, these four uh, are a huge part of Galatians 3. Paul uses these four people to explain exactly what's going on really in all of history and to help the Galatians understand while they can't add anything to their faith in Jesus, that it must be Jesus plus nothing else. No human effort, no works of the law. Do not add anything because Jesus fulfilled all of it. So what we're going to do is we're going to jump into Galatians 3. So if you have your Bibles, if your app's up, go ahead and, and kind of open up there. We're going to read a good amount of this, so we're going to start off right in Galatians 3, 1, and uh, Paul's first three words in 3, 1, um, well, just listen to him. This is what he says. You ready? You foolish Galatians. That's his first three words. If you remember two weeks ago when we opened up Galatians for the first time, Paul was very short with the Galatians from the beginning. He didn't really lavish any praise on them. He didn't talk about how he was praying for them and praising God for them. The reason was, was because they were falling into the temptation of following false teachers. Jewish teachers who said, hey, you have faith in God. And Jesus may have fulfilled this promise over here by he's the way people are saved, but that's not enough. You have to add law into the equation. Law plus Jesus will be, will be enough to get you saved, but Jesus alone is not enough. And so this is what Paul says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh or by the law? Have you experienced so much in vain if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard. So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So that's the first six verses of Galatians. And so what Paul is saying is, is pretty simple. He's talking to the Galatians saying, remember a few years ago, Galatians, when I came and I promised to you that Jesus was enough, 
I came and I let you know the same thing that I let these believers at Pisidian and Antioch know, that we have the fulfillment of all of the promises of God for all of eternity in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And remember that when you believed that, when you accepted that as truth, the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God, entered into your life and you were saved. And so what Paul is saying is, Galatians, why in the world would you trade that out for something else? If that's how it began, in the Spirit, through faith in Jesus, why now are you trying to go back and add works of the law back into the equation? Why are you adding this human effort back into what Jesus has already done for you? And Paul doesn't only say that. He also says it's not just that you experience salvation that way. Everyone for all of time has experienced salvation that way. When Abraham was given the promise of God that through him everyone on the world, in the world would, would have, be offered salvation, could be blessed, what happened? Abraham believed. And in that belief, he was made righteous. He was considered righteous. That was his salvation. And so what, what they're saying, what Paul's saying is, is this. And this is going to be your first fill-in. It says, continue in the way that you began, by faith and not works. That's the first thing that Paul is, is teaching these Galatians through this, this uh, discussion of all four of these characters. Continue in faith because that's how it all began. You accepted Christ by faith. That's how your salvation occurred. That's how you experienced the Holy Spirit in your life. It wasn't by something you did. It wasn't human effort. It wasn't pleasing God enough, doing enough good deeds to get God's favor. It was belief in Jesus Christ that saved you. So continue in that. Don't give that up for another way of life. And, you know, we, we do the same thing. You know, this was somewhat, you know, what their issues, like what they were struggling with back in the first century. But we do the same thing a lot of times. You know, we trade in the grace that we have found in Jesus and our faith in Jesus for, for law, for works, for human effort all the time. We do this usually, but this is kind of how it works out, I've noticed even in my life, is, you know, when I became a Christian, when I became a believer in Christ, one thing I realized was that I was hopeless and I was helpless on my own. That there is no amount of good deeds, there is no amount of uh, righteousness that I can gain on my own. If I were to put my good deeds up against my bad deeds, the good wouldn't necessarily outweigh the bad. But even if the good outweighed the bad, I would still be sinful enough and have enough bad in my life that I couldn't save myself because God was holy and pure and righteous. And any amount of sin at any point would keep me away from him. I realized that I couldn't do it on my own. And so I experienced the grace of God through Jesus and the Holy Spirit entered to my life. And for you, that's probably very similar. At some point in your life, if you're a believer in Jesus, you recognize that Jesus saved you. You didn't save yourself, right? And so what happens a lot of times is we start off that way. We begin that way, we experience the grace of God, and then we some, for some reason we get into a church setting, we begin to make friends in a church, we become someone at the church, and our sinful nature kicks in, our, our Galatian-like tendencies kick in, and we start to think that we have to work to earn the favor of people and the favor of God. And so we trade our faith-based salvation 
in for a, a works-based salvation. And then we begin to work really hard and, and try to earn people's favor. And maybe we will become somebody important in the church. Maybe people will start looking up to us. And we try to do it on our own. And then we start thousands of years before that promise was fulfilled. And so God brought the law in to be a guardian, to watch over the people during that time. I like to think of it in, this ter- in these terms. I like to think of the law maybe as a babysitter. How many of you guys have kids and you've left your kids with a babysitter when you went off and did something? Many of you guys have, right? And so, so if, if you were to leave, let's say you went off for a couple of days or even for a night, and let's say you left your kids at home without a babysitter, what would happen? Somebody might be visiting the emergency room, right? You get home and your house is an absolute disaster, right? And so what, what God was doing, what Paul is saying here, is that the law was a babysitter. It watched over the people of God for a time. It represented God to the people, just like a babysitter represents the parents to the children, right? It, it shows, it keeps order, it, it protects the children, just like a babysitter protects the children. But the babysitter is only there until the parents return, right? Until the promise is fulfilled. And so that's what Paul is saying here is the law is like a babysitter. And once the, the promise is fulfilled, once the parents return, the babysitter goes home, right? Now think about this with me. Let's say <clears throat> that you went off and you went somewhere for a couple of hours and you brought a babysitter in. Let's say you looked at your children And you said to your children, I'm going away for a little while. I promise you when I return, I will give each of you a piece of candy from the candy stash. We have a candy stash. Our kids every day are asking about it. They want it. They just, we used to have it out where they could see it. And now we put it behind a door because that was really bad. So let's say, kids, I'm going away for a little while. When I get back, I promise you, I will give you a piece of this candy. So you go off for a few hours. Uh, The babysitter is watching over the kids. One of the things that the babysitter probably does is says, remember, your parents are coming back. Your parents will be here because the babysitter always points forward, right, to the return of the parents. So so the, the babysitter says, your parents are coming back. You return, and you sit your kids down. And let me ask you this question. Let's say you said to your kids, now, kids, did all of you obey the babysitter completely? Because if you didn't, you're not getting this piece of candy. Would that be fair? Yes? No? As parents, we want to say, yeah, that'd be fair. They, they disobeyed, so they don't get the candy. But that wouldn't be fair, would it? Because that wasn't a, um, a condition of getting the candy. I, I promised you you would get a piece of candy when I returned. And so now that I've returned, you get the piece of candy. You know, my daughter already realizes this. She's nine years old now. And uh, there was one time that I think I was going to work, and I said, when I get home, I will do this with you. I can't remember what it was. Maybe we'll make a craft. We'll paint something. And so I got home, and I said, and she's like, good, you're back. Because she always remembers everything. Let's do this craft. Let's do it. And I said, well, have you cleaned your room yet? And she looked at me and said, Dad, that was not part of the deal. And I was like, touche, yeah, you're right. That was not part of the deal. I made the promise. And so, uh, so that's how the law works. <clears throat> now that the, the promise has been filled, now that the, the parents are back, so to speak, the law goes away, right? 
The law does, is important because the law represents God. It shows God's character. It protects. It gives us a, a way of life that we can strive towards, but it isn't um, over our lives in a way that can save us at all. And this is what, what happens with our lives. As, you know, 2,000 years later, you know, we can may say, well, why does it even matter to us now? But I think we choose the babysitter over the parent all the time. And Paul's probably saying to us, don't choose the babysitter over the father. But we do this all the time, 2,000 years later, after the law was fulfilled, after the law was done away with, we choose the babysitter still over the father. And this is how we do it. We try to make human effort give us things that God has already given us in Jesus. You see that? The law came, to, and that was, that was Israel's way of gaining blessing and cursing during that time. And so we try to make our own human efforts give us things that Jesus already gave us. Another way we do this is we, we focus in as a church on what we're against a lot more than what we're for. Think about the law. Do not, 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 right? But here's the thing. What we do is we elevate the, the Ten Commandments over, over the fruits of the Spirit, so Jesus came, the Holy Spirit enters into our life, and in Galatians, we'll get to in a few weeks, there's these fruits of the Spirit that begin to tell us what we're all about. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, positive attributes that begin to flow out of the presence of God in our life. And yet we choose the babysitter when we elevate Ten Commandments over fruits of the Spirit. When we decide that I'm a Christian, I'm a believer because I don't do these ten things. Never mind whether or not I'm loving or patient or kind or, or good or, or faithful. I, I don't do these ten things. I'm a Christian. And I think Paul would say, no, that's not the Christian life. When we choose God's law over God's presence, we set ourselves up for disaster. Because what we do is we decide that we'll just live a moral life. We'll just check the 10 boxes over here. And God is promising us so much more in Jesus. He's saying you can have a purposeful, passionate, abundant life filled with joy in the Holy Spirit when you depend on Jesus as the fulfillment of all things. Instead of trying to strive in human effort to check a couple of boxes off in the, in the law. And so that's what Paul is saying here in this part. And then he goes on. This is the last section. After he says that, hey, guys, continue in the way that you began. The way that you came to know Jesus was through faith, through faith alone, realizing that you were hopeless and helpless on your own. And then continue that way. And then don't choose the babysitter over the father. Don't go back to trying to check off these boxes of law when you have something so much better in the Holy Spirit in your life. He says, you will receive benefits. You will receive blessing. There are amazing things in store for you when you don't add anything to Jesus. And this is the final three verses, starting in verse 26, or four verses. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. So notice what he says. So in Christ Jesus, not by doing enough good things, not by coming to church enough, not by checking off any boxes, not by um, fulfilling the Ten Commandments or following the Old Testament law. No, in Christ Jesus, through faith, you are all children of God. 
For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. And that's benefit number one right there. It's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He's for us. When, it, when Paul talks about being clothed with Christ, it's this idea that, that who I am on my own is a sinful human being. Who I am on my own is a dirty person who God can't let into his presence because he is a holy and righteous God. But when I am clothed with Christ, I put on the righteousness of Jesus over me, and God sees a holy and pure son of God. Or son, yeah, son of God because of what Jesus has done for me. You see, here's the thing. You can't add impurity to purity without losing the purity, right? You can't take something of great value, add something of lesser value to it, and not lose value for that greater thing. Jesus is perfectly pure, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous. And when we try to add our sinful human efforts to that, we lose the value of Jesus. We lose the purity of what Jesus did for us. If I come to God and say, on Jesus because of what Jesus did and Jesus alone, Jesus plus nothing else, God says, you're righteous on behalf of Jesus. If I come to God and say, yes, I have Jesus. He's pure, he's righteous, he's holy, but here's my human efforts. Here's my, here's my deeds. Here's what I'm adding to it to get what I need for you, from you, God. He says, you've just made Jesus impure. You've just lost the value of Jesus because of what you've added. And so these Galatians, Paul wanted them to realize that's what they were doing. When they add Jewish rituals, when they add the importance or the, the requirement of circumcision, when they add these dietary regulations, when they add anything to Jesus and Jesus alone and what Jesus did on the cross, they were devaluing everything that Jesus did in their lives. So that's the first thing. The second thing comes in the next verse. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor there is male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So the second benefit is boundaries are destroyed. Boundaries are destroyed when we put nothing in the equation with Jesus, that it's all about Jesus and what Jesus did for us. We don't try to earn it. We rest in the hope that Jesus has for us. Because here's what happens. When we start to, to trust in our own efforts, we start to puff ourselves up. We start to get really prideful, and we start to decide, well, this is who I am. We create categories. We create boundaries. We create things that people need to fit in to be like me. And if this person's like me, then I can be friends with them. If they're not like me, I'm going to look down on them a little bit. They're not really like me, and so I'm going to kind of stay away from them. And that's all based on our human effort. If I am who I am because of what I have done, then anybody who's not like me is because they haven't tried hard enough. They haven't been able to do it, and so they're lesser than me. But if Jesus is all in all, if there's nothing else, if that all of us are in the same boat, where we are all sinful, hopeless, and helpless in need of Jesus, and if we don't have Jesus, we're all not going to make it, then everyone's in the same boat. Racism is destroyed. Political parties is destroyed. Social classes are destroyed. All of that goes away in the family of God because that's not what it's about. It's not about Jesus plus a political party. It's not about Jesus plus a certain race of people. It's not about Jesus plus a certain social status, and then you can be a part and you can be accepted. It's Jesus plus nothing and Jesus alone. 
And then here's the last benefit. The last verse, verse 29. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And so if you accept that Jesus is all and that nothing else needs to be added to Jesus, the greatest benefit of all is that everything that God has promised in all of eternity to his people, we become heirs of that. We inherit that. Everything that Jesus is, we also get to partake in. The very presence of God, the holiness and righteousness of Christ, eternity one day with Jesus and enjoying his presence forever. Everything that is Jesus becomes ours. You see, it's, it's a really bad trade to trade in the fulfillment and the promises of God in Jesus for things of this world that will never fulfill us. That's what Paul is telling these Galatians. Don't trade in all that Christ is for you for a few of these Jewish rules, a few of these rituals, a few of these regulations. Don't trade in the acceptance of Christ for the acceptance of these other people here in this world because the acceptance of Christ means eternal relationship with God. And he says the same thing for us. Don't trade in Jesus for other people. And so that's the, that's the story of Galatians 3. That's what Paul is, is, is teaching the Galatians. But what does it mean for us? And this is what it means for us, I think. The first thing is this, is that Jesus is sufficient to fulfill all of God's promises for me. I know that I need Christ in my life. And I know that I am not the person that God intends me to be, wants me to be. I know I'm not living out this perfect life that God desired when he created Adam and Eve in the garden. And they fell, and God made a promise way back then that he would make things right. And Jesus fulfilled that promise. Here's a passage of scripture where Paul is talking to the Corinthians, and he says this, 2 Corinthians 1.20, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. And so in Christ, all promises are fulfilled, and Jesus is sufficient to fulfill those. And what that means, if that is true, is that Jesus is sufficient to fulfill all of my desires, all of my hopes, and all of my dreams, and all of my needs. If Jesus could fulfill the demands of God, the promises of God, he can fulfill my needs. He can fulfill my wants. He can fulfill my desires. So what are you wanting? What are you desiring this morning? Is it happiness? Jesus promises that if you will just depend on him and come to him and be in communion with him and love him, that your life will be filled with abundant joy, overflowing praise. That's a good thing. But when we add something to the equation, when it becomes Jesus plus our human efforts or some type of expectations that we create, we begin to lose that experience of happiness. Maybe it's significance, purpose. There's no greater purpose in this life than teaching people about the freedom of Jesus, sharing with other people the love of God. And you know what the message is, is that Jesus alone can save and that through Jesus you can have a great purpose. But to the extent that we taint that with our own human efforts, to the extent that we decide that my purpose is more important or needs more time than the purpose that Jesus has for me, we begin to lose that sense of purpose. And so whatever it is in your life that you want 
that you dream about, that you feel like you need, that, that you want in your life, the reality is that when you come to Jesus and you experience the fulfillment of Jesus and Jesus alone and Jesus plus nothing else, you'll realize that Jesus is all that you need. And so what that means for me is the reminder, and this is the last fill in the blank, is that I should never let my self-sufficiency replace my Jesus dependency. When I came to Jesus, I knew that it was because I was completely dependent on him. When I've experienced the greatest amount of happiness and joy in my life, it was the moments when I was completely dependent on him. When I've realized that I don't need a bunch of really nice things, a big house or a nice car or a lot of money to buy a bunch of stuff, it was when I was completely dependent on Jesus. When I felt the greatest purpose and significance in my life, it's when I depended completely on Jesus and not on myself. And so just like the Galatians, we don't need to add anything to Jesus. Jesus plus nothing is what faith is all about, that when we live for Christ and Christ alone, it can change our lives because it's always been about Jesus and it always will for all of eternity. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you that Jesus fulfilled all the promises of God. And because he fulfilled all the promises of God, we can know, we can be sure, we can be confident that he fulfills all of the needs of our life. He fulfills all of our desires. He fulfills all of the things that we think that we want. God, Jesus is sufficient. I am not. We are not. We are hopeless. We are helpless. If we try to fulfill our own desires, we will fail. If we try to fulfill the promises of you, God, and try to earn favor with you, we will fail. But Jesus is sufficient to fulfill. And because of that, I pray that we would depend wholly on you, that we would not depend on ourselves, that we would make it all about Jesus, just like it always was and always will be. And I pray these things in your son's name. Amen.